Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Aaron. And I'm Damien. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work for social justice. Each week, we bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want interdependent study to be a space where we are always learning with one another. Uh, and Damien, you're up this week. So what are you bringing to the table today? Yes, sir. Yeah. All right. So uh, this week, I have an article for us. It is called, After a Mirror Lock Killing, Is Police Reform Even the Solution? No, it's not. Yeah, correct. Oh, wait. Spoiler alert. Oh, it's no. <laughs> Stay with us, folks. <laughs> It'll be good. Um it was written by a guy named Ernest Owens for Rolling Stone and was published on their website just earlier this month. So you can still check it out there with us. And um, what's wild is that it's not a particularly long article at all, right? No. Um, but I think it makes such a compelling argument in a pretty accessible way against police reform. Spoiler alert mm-hmm. again. Uh, and I think specifically against police reform even being worthy of a conversation, Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think. I think. Uh, oh, you have some thoughts there. Well, I think his his argument is like we we did that and yeah. now we're past it. And so, like, what is the next conversation to have? Yes, that's a good way to put yeah. it. That's yeah. a good clarification. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, what he did here, what Ernest Owens did, was use what happened in Minneapolis, sort of with and in between the police killings of George Floyd back in 2020, uh, and even sort of, uh, I would you know call back to Breonna Taylor as well, um, and Amir Locke just earlier this month as sort of a shining example of police reforms not being an effective way to make the changes necessary in our society and for uh, our public safety, right, in order to keep us all safe and and alive. And so throughout the piece, he highlighted a few examples from other places in the country of times where police reform hasn't been the solution, yep. uh, sort of as you said here. And so I think ultimately that this article really invites us to have a conversation about what's next. And so I'm excited sort of for that, like certainly about police reform, but um, beyond that, right? I, I don't know where we're going to go, but, you know, police abolition, I would imagine, is a place we're going to go, public safety and sort of other things that just might come to mind as we think about, you know, what we talk about here being our our desire for collective liberation. So, um, and I, I certainly want to talk a little bit about Amir Locke as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah uh, I'm curious, what were, what were your initial reactions to this article? Yeah, this was a powerful, um, powerful article that, as you said, I, um, I, I was surprised at the sort of brevity of it. Yeah. Um, which didn't change the, the powerfulness of it. Yep. Um, but it was a clear call to change, um, the course of the conversation on police violence, yep. right? Which, uh, based on some of the things we've read here on the podcast, yeah. we know that violence is inherent in the system of policing and more broadly, the prison industrial complex, yes. right? We call it the the criminal punishment system for a reason. Yep. Uh, but I think Ernest Owens here is pointing out the ways that reform has been discussed uh, and pursued in, in some ways. Yep. Um, and the ways that it has just continued to fall short. Um, And I, I, I don't feel like he's actually called fully calling for like abolition of the police here. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't recall that term. Nope. Coming up. It it was Um, not used, but he does say 
uh, toward the end that it's time to think about how uh, we need to have different voices and people uh, who are working to disempower the police rather than working with them for reforms, um, right? Which is a, a really clear call to action and a shift away from the kind of reformist reforms that he's he's sort of naming and talking about yep. as examples to the kind of abolitionist steps um, that we've talked about here before, um, you know, thinking about that critical resistance yes. um, chart and the differences between those two things. Um, even if he doesn't use the words abolitionist steps, mm -hmm. I think that's what uh, might be the next thing that he's calling on us to consider. Like yep. who are the different voices um, in the room? Who's thinking differently about what public safety is? Um, that, yeah. And so I, I saw a lot of like connection there, even if he didn't specifically say like abolition of the prison industrial complex. Yeah. It makes me think about sort of what I said around it being accessible. Right. Like I think yeah. this is a sort of a this could be a gateway piece for folks to sort of um, recognize. Like if you're if you, you know, um, were to Google a mirror lock because you're trying to figure out what's happening and this comes up and you read it, it might make you think like, yeah, no, wow, this yeah. isn't working. If you're new to sort of this idea, yeah. um, I think this is sort of an accessible way to get into this conversation and say, okay, well, I think he's right here. What's next? Right. Right. And so um, I I did appreciate that. And yeah, I, I, I think I went back after I read it a couple of times to, to look, did he actually say abolition? And he didn't. No, yeah. uh, but I think I think he's there. Mm. <laughs> I think he's skirting around it. Absolutely. So uh, that's good. You know, um, I mentioned him. And so I do want to talk about Amir Locke. Yeah. I think I said this last week. Right. I uh, I've been a bit disappointed by it's probably not strong enough of a word um, by the fact that I don't feel like there's enough people talking about him and what mm -hmm. happened to him. So, I mean, I think certainly there there's movement work and 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 sort of uprising if you will happening in minneapolis but yeah. sort of beyond that and sort of in in sort of my circles and my social media right I, I just i don't see it enough right and so um to quickly share the story amir Locke was a 22 year old black man who was shot and killed on february 2nd so just a few weeks ago by the minneapolis police department while they were serving a search warrant and um i <laughs> it's it's taken me a long time to get here. Uh, I did not watch the video footage. Yeah. Um, I've done that before, and it's broken me. Um, mm -hmm. But I didn't do it this time. But there's apparently body cam footage that shows four or so police officers using a key to enter the apartment where he was sleeping, you know, because they had this no-knock warrant in hand. Um, and then they sort of proceeded to shout at him, and then essentially they execute him, right? Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, of course, uh, when the police sort of tell the story, they talk about how the, the fact that he was holding a handgun, you know, he pulled a handgun when they shot him. But again, the reality is Amir was sleeping. Right. And yeah. the police entered the apartment without knocking. Right. Mm -hmm. And so and 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 the fact is Amir was not actually named in the warrants that they had. Right. right? And yeah. so and so there's that. And, and I, I don't know. I I don't I don't think I have anything profound to say. Other than, like I said before, I just haven't felt like Amir and what happened to him have been talked about enough. And I and, I, and this happened in Minneapolis, too. Right. Mm -hmm. And so just a year after Dante Wright, two years after George Floyd, um, which for it to keep happening in Minneapolis uh, is is an is another element of this being wild. Um, but yeah. of course, it's it's just 
it's insane. And I, I think I feel pretty devastated and angry that yet another black man, another black person is dead at the hands of the police, right? And mm-hmm. just another person that sort of looks like me. And I've, I've just had lots of sort of, um, lots of emotions uh, in the past couple of weeks about it. So it just makes me really sad. It makes me think about where we go from here, right? So that this doesn't happen again um, and where we need to go from here so that this doesn't happen yeah. again. So yeah, I, 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 I know part of the conversation in work or I think part of the work in the conversation needs to, that needs to happen is what Ernest is talking about in this article, right? But I feel like I, I, I wanted to bring this to the table because I wanted to partially just get some of that off my chest. So thanks for letting me do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't have anything profound to say here either. I don't think, um, you know, this murder is another stain on the history of the country. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's one we have to like, you know, look at, we can't look away from this. Um, and, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's, you said that they, that he was sleeping and right. they entered without knocking and yeah. without announcing themselves. Right. right. Um, and so, you know, I also see parallels with him and Philando Castile because they oh. both owned those handguns legally. Yes. Um, and you know, these are different situations obviously, but you know, I think if you, um, Though Philando was Minneapolis too, yeah, yeah, in, the, yeah. in the vicinity, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's, um, yeah, I see parallels there. Like they're both killed by police for having the gun in their possession when they, when the police decided to interact with them. Um, and you know, I, it doesn't really matter what the legality is of that of that weapon Thank either, um, because ultimately they were executed without a trial, without any kind of due process for yeah. understanding what the context is around that firearm. Yeah. Um, you know, and as I recall, Philando also was like, "Hi, I'm a, I'm legally, yeah, licensed to have this, and I have it on me." So you're going to see it when I get my stuff out. of Right. So there's all of these layers to stuff that's like the things people do the, the right things and it yep. doesn't matter. And there's they still end up dead. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I also think about like being woken up. You know, I don't uh, myself own a, a gun. Right. Um, but if I heard somebody coming into my house yeah. while I'm like asleep, I'm going to grab something, something to help defend uh, to be yourself like because I don't know who that is. Absolutely. And it happens to be the. You know, it happens to be the cops who I'm, you know, you said it's at least four officers. So, like, they're all armed to the teeth. Yes. Right. So there's just an element of, like, absurdity and um, ridiculousness where, like, there was no there was no good outcome that was going to come of this. No. Um, And the the actions that that, that they took um, in deciding to 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 serve this this warrant. so yeah, I think it just like shows the sort of brokenness of the system or like the system is actually working how it's supposed to. And we're all like in uh, some ways disposable um, because, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I think it's that disposability that is another big element of this and why it sort of hurts because I think there are certain folks who are disposable yes, in this yeah, system, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, so we're both sort of at a loss for words here. Um yeah. As it relates to um, this young man is just gone now, you know, and as another victim of this violence and what did you say, a stain, right, in our yeah. in our history. Um, and yet another 
name to try to remember in this long list of names to remember. And so, um, you know, um, and all of this sort of stems or, you know, happened in a big piece of what Ernest talked about here was the the no-knock warrant piece, right? Mm -hmm. So I did want to talk a little bit about that, right? Because I've honestly been a little fascinated by them for some time now, especially since the murder of Breonna Taylor, right? Um, I, I, I looked up like a functional definition of them. And what I found was no-knock warrants are orders by judges that allow police to enter premises without notifying residents, such as by ringing a doorbell or banging on the door. And I I don't know. I just can't get behind the idea of them at all. I don't think – I think that a practice that can lead to the unwarranted or unnecessary death of someone, like Mm -hmm. in the cases of Brianna and Amir uh, and others, there are are others, um, is just – I think there is no discussion for me, right? And it's just worth us ceasing to use that practice. Um, And so I think that's part of the point that Ernest is trying to make in this article, right? Um, The mayor of Minneapolis put a moratorium on the use of no-knock warrants after Amir Locke's death, but that was something that he had previously done after the killing of of Brianna and George, right? Yeah. You know, and so, and I think that restriction on the use of no-knock warrants was part of a broader set of reforms. So here we are talking about reforms uh, after George Floyd's murder. But, you know, in that case, there was, of course, a loophole in place that gave the judge in this scenario the ability to agree to no-knock warrants in what they call high-risk situations. And so, you know, here we are again with the death of another black man at the hands of the police yeah. in that same city. And so I... I I just don't think it's a leap to say that the reforms have loopholes or exceptions that can be made. So what is the point of them? Or, you know, to Ernest's point, I think you sort of made it like they're just not working. Yeah. Yeah. The um, the other thing about Minneapolis is that it was um, and sort of continues to be an example of police reforms <sighs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. Right. Like it, yeah. it was an example before um, the murder of George Floyd, which I think think actually was in response to um, the murder of Philando Castile. If I have my timeline right there, mm-hmm. there, there were some things that they did to try to respond to that. Um, and those things have not, haven't done much, no. right? Um, because there's still people dying unnecessarily at the hands of police. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, so back to the no-knock warrants, it also doesn't seem like there are too many guidelines for when they're necessary right as outside yes. of the high risk right like and what does high risk mean and who's actually defining high risk yep those, those are questions i think to ask yeah. um, but they do seem to get used quite a bit um you know ernest owens listed in the article that the court records state that the minneapolis police department filed for 13 no-knock warrants and 12 standard search warrants wow. um, in the period of time that he looked um and there are some warrants that are sealed, so there could be even more no-knock oh, warrants, right? Right. So, because yeah. um, some things are are, are uh, confidential in the system, so um, that seems to contradict. Actually, let me take that back. That does contradict. <laughs> there it is. What the mayor said a couple years ago, where he he, I believe, said he banned no-knock warrants, yep. right? Yep. Um, and so here he is again in the wake of this, saying that there's a moratorium on them, but you banned them already two right. years ago. So what? Why are we you here? Know, what is, How what's are the disconnect? Um, yeah. And so I really, um, one of the things that that I think he said around this area of the article is that it's impossible to reform a system that's set up to lie to you. Oh, um, man. Say it again. 
it's po- impossible to reform a system that's set up to lie to you. Yeah. Um, and because the system works to protect itself, um, and reify itself and re- re-entrench itself. Uh, and so this is what we're left with. This is what we're left with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so there's a, there's a connection there, right. Mm-hmm. To, and Ernest makes this, so I'm, I'm not making it here. Ernest makes it, um, to, because you mentioned the mayor, right? And you mentioned the police, right? So there's a connection here to the relationship that exists between politicians and law enforcement too, right? right? Yep. And so and he spends a good deal of the article talking about that. And I think this is a, a, a critical point because it, it means a lot in terms of its real life effect on our communities and, and our continued fight for finding real genuine safety, right? And assuring real genuine safety for everyone, right? And so um, I I have two quotes here. He says, it's hard not to find the hypocrisy between the politicians, I'm sorry, between both politicians and the police when they actively engage with each other in counterproductivity. Politicians propose police reform. The cops lobby their unions to try to kill it. And the community suffers as a result. And to add insult to injury, the fraternal order of the police will continue to offer money to elected officials to buy their complicity, while said politicians will continue to seek their problematic backing. This sure doesn't seem like progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a um, there's a piece in this too, which I wanted to to add in here, where he names that the people who publicly seem to be the most um, supported by the police in terms of politicians are Republicans. Yep. However, Good. um they gave money almost equally to um, Democrats and Republicans across different elections across the country. Yes. Right. So, um, you know, they supported uh, Trump in 2016 and 2020, uh, but they supported the Democratic governor candidate in Kentucky. Yep. Um, so there's right. Like there, there's a little bit of like, not necessarily um, political, they're not uh, politically like aligned a hundred percent in terms of like ascribing to a certain political party. Right. Um, it seems that they're looking for other cues of like wh- who's going to be pro and right. So um, that was that was something else that I thought about when you said mentioned about pol- politicians um, and the police and sort of the 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 ways that they are. Um, supporting each other, funding each other, right? Like that kind right. of thing. Absolutely. That's a very good point. Yeah. And which is, it's fascinating to know and it's fascinating for and important for all of us to recognize, right? Like the power that um, the, the police have over all of our politicians, yeah. right? Um, right. And it's not a bipartisan, it's not a partisan, that's the word, uh, commitment, uh, yeah. if you will, on the hands of the of the police mm-hmm. and and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other quote I pulled, he sort of says this later in the piece, as long as national, state and city governments and politicians continue to fund police departments by the millions, they will remain in a codependent relationship that entrenches the worst practices, leads to violence and prevents meaningful change. Reformers are often well-meaning, but reform is politics and politics is dirty. If after two years of protests and promises, an innocent young black man can't sleep in peace without cops choosing to bust in his house and kill him, how can we believe the police will ever change for the better? Yeah. And yeah, I don't, I don't think I could have said it better myself, right? right. Like this man was asleep in his bed. Brianna was asleep in her bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah. What do you think? Yeah. That, that, um, 
that quote you pulled, I think is 100% correct. This is a system of policing um, and more broadly, again, uh, incarceration yes. that is fed by violence and punishment. Um, and so, I, you know, I also think if the system was going to change, it would have by now. Yeah. Right. There have been demands for change for decades preceding the uprises in the early 2010s. Yep. Um, and, you know, as those continue to today and the police and pro-police politicians, um, which maybe we should actually call them anti-accountability politicians. Now oh, I, I like say that. it out loud. I like that. Um, they continue to find ways to re-entrench the system. Um, and so, you know, one of the points you brought up from Ernest Owens is that the water, that they water down any kind of reforms to, to basically nothing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, and, and one of the things I always think of uh, is that this is an institution that should be serving us. Yes. Right. The, the people should be dictating what safety is. Um, they are essentially, you know, public servants who are paid through tax dollars. Yep. There's no real method of like regular citizens um, having any accountability over, over the police because the politicians, as we said, are sort of, they're on both sides of the aisle, essentially yep. believe that there's nothing wrong and they are also politically supported by yeah, the police um, yeah. in terms of like campaign donations. Um, so, you know, they, they, the politicians seem to believe that, uh, believe in the system, um, you know, based on the actions or the, or the inactions really uh, that they have taken. So yeah. that's, it's fascinating to hear the words, right? It's fascinating to think about the concept of, right? Like they're, they're, this is a system that is supposed to be a public service, right? It is supposed to right. serve all of us, right? It is funded by us, um, but it is absolutely a system that is entrenched and sort of uh, fed by violence. Right. And I think a certain type of violence or a certain type of targeted violence. Mm -hmm. um, so um, that system, by virtue of that, that system can't serve all of us. Right. right. It actually serves none of us. Yeah. Um, and that, is an excellent point. I appreciate mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a system that was designed to protect, right? We talked about this before at some yeah. point in terms of the history of policing. Yeah. And where um, it comes back. Yes. It was designed to protect property um, and guard property. Mm -hmm. um, and what you know, was that property? Property uh, of uh, human beings. Yeah. Um, right. So a lot Jeez. of the, the sort of policing that exists today evolved out of slave patrols right um and so i think that's an important point to make and you know even uh it beyond sort of the protection of uh people uh at people as property um there's also the protection of sort of like power power and also yes. like you know physical property right like police have been used throughout history to um respond to labor disputes mm -hmm. um on the side of the the owner of mm -hmm. the company so there there's all of these things that that are set to protect power and to protect property um and so that's you know one of the ways that uh that service does happen yes uh, but yeah. is it who is it in service to absolutely uh, is that that 
that real underlying underlying question. Right? That's a great point. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, so you mentioned history. It makes me think about uh, like let's shift and talk about application here. Yeah. Um, because one of the things that um, Ernest says and talks about in this article, which you know we certainly know to be true, and you just hit it on the head there, right? That history is showing us that you can't reform a system that doesn't want to reform itself, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we've talked about this in here at the table in previous episodes as well, right? History repeats, repeats itself, um, especially when it comes to these types of and other types of injustices, injustices that we've seen over and over and over again in this country, right? And so, you know, when I think about application, I'm reminded about that fact. Um, and actually, I'm thinking about it because you have the book sitting right there. We just had this conversation about the Abolition Feminism Now panel last week, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about it there too. And so um, I think history repeats itself. And as a result, history is important, yeah. right? And the stories of real people embedded in that history are important. You talk about a mirror lock now being a stain on our history, right? Like, I, yeah, I have, there's, there's a lot there for me, right? Like mm-hmm. that makes that, I have actual feeling in my body as I think about that. And I say that, um, you know, and I, so, and I think that's why I feel felt and feel so compelled to talk about Amir Locke and what happened to him and, and, and the countless other folks um, that we've talked about here. Um, so I think I think that's one piece of application for me that we have to continue to tell these stories, we have to amplify these stories, you know, especially the ones like Amir, you know, in the context and the, the, the conversations necessary to push for abolition, right? And I we've said it more than once that we think it's the only way forward. Um, but I certainly... Um, I just don't want there to be more Amirs and more Briannas and more Dantes and more Georges and more Flandos um, and and the countless other names. Um, I just don't want that anymore. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think my um, my application or my version of application today <laughs> uh, is to continue to take time to unpack and analyze policing. Mm. Um you know, I think that uh, thinking about like what is it doing for us? Yeah. Um, what does it do to us? Um, in the active ways in which like it removes people from us, both sort of by murder, but also by locking them away. Yeah. Um, but also like what is it? What does their presence do to the rest of us mm. who aren't murdered or who aren't locked away? Um, there, there's, there are answers to that question yeah. that I think we all have to sort of explore. Um, and, and that's direct impact on our day-to-day lives. Yeah. Um, you know, I want, I want us to think about what are reforms, what are these reforms really calling for when people ask for or demand a reform, what's that reform going to do? Yeah. Um, I think having folks develop a lens or analysis through which they can look at these seemingly intractable systems such as policing um, I think is so crucial for moving to a world where someone like Amir Locke or, or Brianna Taylor aren't killed by police conducting a raid in the middle of the night. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, um, so yeah, I think we have to continue to tell these stories. I think we have to continue to um, in the ways that we can um, not look away. We have, we have to got, we've got to sort of, sit with them yeah. uh, and recognize what what these what does it mean to us um, to live in this um, culture in this society that continues to have these outcomes that have these 
um, results. Right. I'll, and then what do we do with that? And what do we do with that? Yeah. I appreciate sort of the idea of thinking about like, obviously what does policing do and what does the, the institution do to the folks who have been directly impacted by it. Right. And who are behind bars perhaps. Right. But also to us as well. Yeah. Right. I, 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 I like that thinking. I like that line of questioning um, because I think that invites all of us to do that right. work. Right. Yeah. Um, That's something that, yeah. um, you know, it makes me think about what, Ruth Wilson Gilmore said in one of the um, documentaries we watched yep. um, is that, you know, policing has led us to not talk to our neighbors as much because yes. if there's like a noise issue or sort of a cons- something that seems concerning rather than us as neighbors going to check on that situation, um, you know, we call the police to do that right. um, for us. And so that um, has sort of stunted our ability to be neighborly and to be in community with other people um, as well. And so that, you know, that's one example of the things that it does to us, even if it's not something that we're actively participating in. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great point. And uh, great shout out to Ruth there. Absolutely. All right. So from application, we go to homework, right? Mm -hmm. So what do we both want to do sort of after this conversation? Um, I, I think I want to look into what's on the books here in the state of Maryland um, in terms of this idea of police reform versus maybe abolitionist measures for public safety. You know, I think between this article and our many conversations, both on and off this podcast about abolition being the only way forward, it makes me think about and, and want to explore what's happening right here in our backyard. And so um, just yesterday, I, as an example, I did a quick search on the Maryland General Assembly's website. Um, And I found one piece of legislation, it's SB 0441 or HB 0991, uh, that's in committee right now, so very early in the process. Um, And it's looking at altering the powers and duties of the Baltimore City Civilian Review Board to function as an actual police accountability board, Mm. right? Um, And so, and you you mentioned that earlier, so it was a great connection, right? We have no sort of accountability uh, and civilian oversight of that. There was also HB 1012 called the Police Immunity and Accountability Act, which is trying to establish that police officers are not immune from civil or criminal liability for violating someone's constitutional rights. And so I think, you know, pieces of both of these um, are are reformist, I think. Right. Um, Yeah. uh, And so. That's one element of this to consider, right? But also wanting to—I mean, these—you know—these bills are multiple pages long, right? And, and I did not dive into them fully, but I want to do some of that work to see what's in this. What are pieces we can parse out? Where where do we need to be stronger in our language, stronger in our actions, right? So that these things aren't reforms. Um, and the other thing I'll mention is the when you search on the Maryland General Assembly website, there's uh, you know it's broken bills are broken down into different categories. So there are dozens upon dozens of um, pieces of legislation right now in the books related to public safety, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, I just uh, all of it, this sort of exercise that I engaged in quickly yesterday, I want to go back to just makes me think about how important it is for all of us to do our homework, to 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 know what's in the works in our local communities and in our states, right? And then yeah. to decide what we want to do about that, right? Like if our elected officials or your elected official is proposing legislation that you're against, right, then you need to contact them and let them know that, right? Like that that's not what I believe in. You represent me. What does that mean? I think beyond that, if there are organizations engaged in that kind of work, right, like then how can you get behind them and support them, right? And so um, 
That's that's sort of what I'm thinking. What about you? Yeah. Um, my homework, I think, for this week uh, and beyond uh, might might not be a surprise, surprise, but to read some more abolition texts. Love it. Um, which, again, might be obvious since I'm almost always trying to learn more about abolition. Um, but beside from that, uh, I'm looking at some articles about our own county here mm-hmm. in Maryland mm-hmm. uh, and the kinds of reforms that the county is trying to implement. So I found an article from December 3rd, 2020, um, that was about a working group in the county released a report okay. um, of some suggestions for, for changes. All right. Um, and another article from February 5th, 2021, oh. that said the county is working on, quote unquote, unprecedented reforms. Get out. Um, so I'm interested to like sort of dive back in and see like what are those things, yeah. um, dissect what they are and, and what they'll actually do for the community, um, right? Unprecedented. Unprecedented. That's the Wow. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No, let's look that up. I'm I'm now intrigued by that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's for our county here in Maryland. Yeah. Okay. Yeah yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, let's look that up. Um, all right, my friend. Uh you're up next time. What are you bringing to the table in our next episode? Yeah. So um before I tell you what I'm going to bring to the table, I'm going to say we're going to take a couple weeks off here. Um so yes. we will be back on uh March 16th. Yes. With a fresh episode. Um, but, um, what I'll be bringing to the table for that episode is, uh, some current events around the law in that's being considered in Florida that would prohibit, um, white people, uh, and others from feeling, uh, uncomfortable about, uh, history. Yes. Um, and so it's related to other laws that have been passed across states, um, uh, in states across the country, right? I should say, um, that limit what can be taught in schools. Um, so it's a continuation sort of, of the conversations we've had here about the backlash to critical race theory. Right. Um, but I think this time it's, it's being codified in some really dangerous ways, um, that could really stunt what is allowed to be taught in public schools. Um, which particularly is poignant for me because, you know, uh, my public school education didn't teach me a lot of things already yeah. that I've learned since uh, then. Um, and, I, you know, my whole public education uh, happened in Florida until right. uh, I graduated from college and then went to uh, North Carolina for a master's degree. So, yeah. you know, um, hmm. yeah, it feels relevant to me. Absolutely. Uh, to, uh, and it's beyond, you know, the, these are the kind of things that are also like stretching beyond just a single state. Right. Um so here's, here is a piece of text from the bill. An individual, by virtue of his or her race or sex, does not bear responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race or sex. An individual should not be made to feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of his or her race. Mm. Um, which, you know, as I read it and as I say it out loud, there's a lot in there to say, like, well, what, like, one, nobody's doing that. Yeah. To why, like, who's making you feel discomfort? Yep. Like, if I just explain something that happened, does that mean that I've made you feel uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. Or did you feel uncomfortable at the, re- and that's your personal reaction that you have to figure out what to do with Correct. based on what history is, yeah. right? Like, so, um, and then the other thing I think about is one of the other things that uh, these these anti-critical race theorist um, people are are doing is attacking social emotional learning as well. Yes, which 
to my mind, I'm like, then, well, then how do you know anything about psychological distress if you don't, right? Like, there we is. don't want people to talk about social, emo social emotional learning, and therefore they won't know about psychological distress. So then how will you know if you feel psychological distress? Uh -huh. You don't want any of, like, so the, there's a an interesting, um, unsurprising, I guess, mm -hmm. um, uh, contradiction here. Um, yeah, but... Anyway, that's enough rambling about that. <laughs> we'll be back to talk more about that um, again after a couple weeks off here. And we'll, we'll be back uh, in your podcast feeds um, on March 16th. Yeah, absolutely. I, it, it, I, have lots, like, I have lots of feelings about that, right? Yeah. Like just the idea of psychological distress. I mean, the, I, the thought of just us talking about Amir Locke, right? And what happened to him. Yeah. Like... What about my psychological distress around right. that, right? And so exactly. uh, I'll, I'll save it. But I do want to point out that maybe what we'll do is we'll post some articles uh, that we're going to read uh, on our socials or something like yeah, that so that folks that can definitely. can read along with us. But um, this is, and I think you talked about this in your in our top five, right? You talk, liked current mm -hmm. events, bringing current events to the table. So I love yeah. that uh, we're doing that here because this is absolutely in the news and it's happening in Florida, but it is, as you said, happening in lots of other states. I believe there's a state that's, requiring teachers to turn in all of their lesson plans. Right. Which and I'm like, does ludicrous. any, do y'all know? That's not how it works. How, how it works for teachers and yeah. the tremendous work that they're doing to, my goodness. So we have, we're going to have lots to talk about uh, yeah. when we return on March 16th. <laughs> yeah. Also, the one thing I want to admit, as, as an educator, I believe in discomfort as, <sighs> as yes. a, as a place in which we learn. Yes. So it's a pedagogical right. it's, um, tool. It's something that you experience and then you do something with it, right? It yes. causes a disequilibrium um, that you then have to respond to. Uh, so, the, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> that, yeah. We're going to get to put our educator hats on, too. I love it. Okay, this is going to be a fun episode. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. All right. All right. With that, folks, we want to thank you for joining us today and for listening to Interdependent Study. Uh, you know what we want you to do, but in case you forgot, please follow, leave a rating and review, share our podcast with everyone you know, follow us on social media, uh, check us out on YouTube, and sign up for our email list to get notified about any new things we've got going on behind the scenes. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. And we'll talk to you next time.